Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. This is where I help strong, capable women excavate the inner garbage in their life so they can become more confident and have more clarity on who they are and how they really want to be in the world. We have rich, juicy conversations about, yeah, you guessed it, empowerment, but also about radiating your brilliance and loving yourself more than you ever have in your life. And who doesn't want that? So join me now for another empowering chat. Hi, and welcome to a new theme. We have been discussing empowerment all year 2020. Boy, did we ever need to talk about that. And this is the last letter of empowerment. It's the T, okay? What we got for T was transformation and trust. And I'm adding the word transition. <laughs> so it's TTT, transition, trust, and transformation. And the reason for that is because we're in a transition, aren't we? We've been in a transition all of 2020. And I have a feeling that we're still in a transition when we get to 2021. So now's the time in this transition to transform and trust yourself, your instincts, your inner guidance, and, and really see if you can come out of 2020 better than when you came in. Transformed, trusting yourself more, and being that light of hope and love, forgiveness and compassion for the world, because that's why we're here. Enjoy the show. So welcome again to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. Uh, before we get started, I have a guest who has an amazing life journey that she's willing to share with us today, and I'm so interested in hearing the details. But before we uh, join into this conversation, I just want to remind everybody about my book, Live an Empowered Life, A 30-Day Journey. It's a workbook that's interactive with my website. Um, people are getting a lot of value out of doing the work, especially during this time of isolation and quarantining and lockdown and social distancing and whatever other label you guys put on it. Um, <laughs> so uh, Live an Empowered Life, a 30-day journey. You can go to my website, find out more about it, or uh, just buy the book on Amazon and start the work. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to uh, message me, I'm happy to answer questions. And also you can join my Live Your Empowered Life Facebook group because that's where I'm also doing uh, workshops and more guided meditations and um, things like that. And we're creating a healing summit that's coming up uh, a little bit later in the year. So um, if you're in the group, you'll get more information about that. Okay. so. Today I have a fellow podcaster and author, and this woman is Jen, it looks like from her resume, so many other amazing things in the arts. And she has written a book called Fixing the Fates, an adoptee story of truth and lies. So I wanna welcome Diane Dewey. Diane, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Susan, for having me. Pleasure to be here. No, I just love the sound of your voice. Oh, <laughs> good. So your journey that prompted you to 
write this book is kind of a um, interesting and exquisite one, especially when you talk about the story of truth and lies. So can you speak, share a little bit with our listeners what that journey was, what caught, prompted you to begin to investigate your personal history? Yes, well, truth and lies, those are relative things, right? Now, right. now we see that whole concept being usurped from many different angles. But um, for me, and I think for um, many adoptees, although I, I'm not speaking for them, I'm speaking just from my story, um, I actually w was yearning Yes, for a truth about my biological heritage. I always knew that I was adopted um, at age one from an orphanage in Germany by an American couple um, through a photograph that they received, um, a, a slew of photographs. And they picked me out of a photograph. So, of course, right away, I was nervous all my life about, you know, how I looked and appearances. And, you know, fortunately, you do reach a stage where that falls away. A bit um, so that other truths can emerge. But actually, I wasn't on a search per se for my past. Um, what in fact happened was that when I was 47 years old, I was contacted out of the blue by my biological father. Wow. So I, I, I always knew I was adopted. Yeah, wow, exactly. How did that, how did that, how did that hit you out of the blue? Was it a shock? Well, yes, especially because on my own cultural biases, I thought, why does a guy do that? You know, because mm -hmm. essentially they're kind of home free, if you will. They, no one knows about them. You know, they're anonymous. Um, and um, lots of guys don't try to make those kinds of reparations. You know, they don't try to fill in those um, gaps or solve those issues. And my biological father, Otto, um, that was what he was after. He was late in life, 74, when he contacted me, and um, he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he wanted to resolve some life issues. So um, I got this letter. And yes, it did shock me, but I can tell you that it was enormously gratifying to be searched for, mm. um, to not to have to do the heavy lifting of potentially being rejected, I sympathize so much with people who go through that. Um, no, here was someone who who was looking for me, and in that sense, I felt acknowledged. I felt acknowledged by someone who didn't need to acknowledge me. Okay, so I have a question for you because I know that a lot of people that have been adopted um, develop or innately have kind of a a background sense of having been abandoned or unwanted. So is that something that you had going on, Diane? I think that, um, sadly, no matter how much love we get from adoptive parents, and I had two great ones, one of whom I just lost um, a month ago. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, thank you, my, my mother. Um, and, um, I, you know, there isn't enough love in the world and it isn't really even love that's going to do the trick there is always a sense um especially since i stayed in the orphanage for a year and a half there's always a sense that um you did something wrong you, mm -hmm. you did something wrong or that wouldn't have happened and that disruption and severance from your biological mother 
wouldn't have happened. Um, and it is an early trauma. You know, it's an, it's an early pre-memory trauma. But um, yeah, I had the sense, um, you know, ultimately, that's why we have to do the work ourselves, because nothing from outside will do it for us. Um, we're the ones that have to acknowledge ourselves, our worth, our value. Mm -hmm. And to, um, as Clarissa Pinkola Estes says, be good and decent to ourselves, learn to be decent to ourselves. Um, it's a little different than love, <laughs> but it starts to be something like that, which is very enriching. I love that you quoted her because I love, I love her writing. Um, yes. So yes, and, and to be good and decent with ourselves is the beginning foundation of developing self-love, you know, instead of having the negative self-talk that um, a lot of people and a lot of women carry um, of not being good enough and not being seen and not being respected. And, you know, and that comes down ancestrally too, through many, yes. many uh, lifetimes of mothers and grandmothers who weren't seen and heard. So to be kind and respectful to ourselves is huge. And it is the beginning piece of, of feeling um, love from within, right? Not love from without. Right. And um, Dr. Estes, um, I'm glad we shared that bond. She's really deep in my, in my soul. Um, you know, Women Who Run With the Wolves was her landmark book. Mm -hmm. she, is, she is also an adoptee and she has also surrendered a child. Um, oh, I did so, not realize that. Yes. She's, she's actually been very good about coming out um, and, and sifting through, you know, the meanings of all of that. Um, but I, I, um, I think the great part about her aspect of being good and decent is that it doesn't fly way to the other side of positive to impossible things like, I think I'm beautiful. I think I'm wonderful. I think I'm great. No, it's just about being decent to yourself, acknowledging your needs, accepting your needs, your offbeat desires and wishes and really who you are um, and starting to process yourself and your identity. Um, I think it's much more fundamental. Um, and I, I think, yeah, she, she knows how to build those, those blocks, I think, because she walks the walk. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting in the uh, idea of being kind and decent with yourself that um, what you just said, that it doesn't, it's not about moving. It's not about the swing, you know, from, from one side to the other, that is like being kind and decent with yourself. If that's all we practice, you know, if that becomes our spiritual focus, if you will, of a, a daily practice today, I will be kind and decent with myself. Then that's the middle ground, you know, like the Buddhists talk about the middle way. Um, so that you're not being attached to any kind of negative stuff from past or present or negative future thinking about yourself. And same with the positivity, because when we swing so far out that uh, the pendulum always has to come back to center, right? And yeah. And if we swing too far out and our expectation is too great, we're disappointed. Mm -hmm. Then there's another judging layer of, you know, I can't do it. I, you know, I, and the, the harshness 
that we talk, our self-talk, you know, I mean, even, you know, I've been listening to David White a lot lately and he, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just unbearable. You know, it's not a matter of treat others as you treat yourself because that would be war. Yes. <laughs> you know, some of us have such a, such a dialogue of just being harsh with ourselves. And as you say, it's these micro adjustments that are going to do the trick that last. And I, I love what you said about the ancestral. I think there's so many good thinkers now, right, who are really trying to understand this from a cellular, you know, molecular inheritance. I think mm -hmm. this is really something that tells you um, what we're up against in terms of, you know, that's it. Like, don't take it on. It's like, well, I can't do this. It's, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard for a reason. This is ancient <laughs> stuff. It's ancient stuff. It's generational. It's, um, it's, it's cultural. It's the, the, the collective consciousness. And those of us that are doing that hard work, that deep work, we are not only creating opportunity to heal ourselves from the inside out, but to help heal others, you know, where, whether this is so interesting, we're having this conversation, Diane. So I, because, so we can heal our ancestral line. We can heal the people that have come before us just by doing the work within ourselves, because there is no, there is no, there in the reality of time, uh, energetically, there is only now. Mm -hmm. Right. And so our grandmothers and their grandmothers are still now. So if we heal ourselves now energetically, it, it vibrates into the past of ancestral and down that lineage line to our future grandchildren's grandchildren. And it's so, fascinating. So it's interesting to me because we're having this conversation because this morning when I was having my cup of tea and sitting outside, I, I got, I was thinking about my son who's phenomenal and what is his lineage of healing that he's in the current process of you know healing for his his father and the, the masculine lineage right since he's incarnated as a man this time my son or for me right and all of a sudden i jumped to what was one of the healings that i came here to facilitate for those women in my ancestry was the having the courage to no longer submit to an unhappy marriage, mm -hmm. having the courage to get divorced. And in my family of origin, that wasn't so. My mother and father have been married for 65 years. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. No. But um, they are. Five days can be tough, you know? Uh-huh, right. Yeah. But then it also, I also saw the line going through my ex-husband's female ancestry because uh, of things that her, his mother shared with me. And mm -hmm. it, it just became so clear that in that confluence that, I, that came as me, as Susan, I, in my choosing to stand up for myself and have the courage and the strength to go through uh, dissolving a, a marriage of 28 years, having that courage I not only created a phenomenal opportunity for myself to live a happy, free, empowered life, but I also created a healing that went back on two different family lines. I saw it so clearly this morning. And so here we are talking about families of origin, finding the ancestry, healing that past. I'm glad. 
Yeah. I'm glad of it for you. But I wonder if when you were doing that, I mean, doing, it's a long doing, right? But right. did you feel her uh, sort of support energetically? Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Because of course, in this embodiment, like, you know, as a person, like as your husband's mother, your ex-husband's mother, she's not allowed to express support for what you're doing. But I just wondered, you know, I, I think that this whole idea of um, what you're saying is just truly um, a revelation to me, truly a new idea that this now that we um, inhabit is able to kind of reverberate, you know, in time backward and forward. And why not? Because time is a relative dimension. Um, but I think that it also, it's allowed us, right, Susan, to look back on the previous generations and have empathy for them, you know, because there are actual explanations for why they were the way they were. Yes. Um, and some of the frustrations that we've borne before, and I really feel this a lot, um, you know, the, the politics of my mother-daughter relationship with my mom, which, thank goodness, we dissolved in the last years and, and had such a peaceful um, ending together um, as she went on. Um, I just think, you know, you do need to, in this generation and in past, previous, and in future, <laughs> Um, really try to understand this context of where people are coming from, why women, yeah, they can be a disempowering mother if they're scared, scared, scared to take risks themselves, you exactly, know? Exactly, exactly. They, they couldn't, they wouldn't. No. And, and so. I don't know that they were, they were allowed, especially if they were um, housewives, which was my mom, my grandmother, my grandmother before, um, my mother-in-law, what they were housewives so they were in charge of the house the children um in in the instance of my mother-in-law they my father-in-law bought a farm bought chickens and sheep and so not only is she raising nine kids or eight kids she's chasing after chickens and sheep while he's at work you know yeah. now me that would so piss me off if somebody did that to me, not only are you here, you're here for, until I come home, right? Do you know what I mean? Just that kind of thing. And my mom and my grandmother were the same, you know, they, they were expected to do all that. And well, it's all on the, on the how of it, right? I mean, I happen to be a chicken lover, but that doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, it's, that it's fair what you're saying. I mean, I, I think if it's, a, again, acknowledged or called out as, you know, this is a, a real big job description that you have that I appreciate you for, that you get rec recognition for um, as being an equal of mine and a partner in our existence, but like that didn't happen either. Right. It was no, all it just didn't happen. assumed that just assumed. Yes. yes. And then they, you did not get to you, you, the compensation that you got was that you got money, you got an allowance, you got money to go buy groceries. You got, you know what I mean? It yes. wasn't, you didn't get paid. And that's, that was a multi-level job. So, um, and I, and nowadays, thank goodness, women get to have choices. We get to choose. Yes, I'm going to stay home with my kids. Currently women are choosing uh, or families are choosing, okay, who's going to stay? Who's going to focus on homeschooling? Are we going to homeschool together? Cause the kids can't go to, 
a regular school right now. You know, it's it. So the whole, which is actually probably going to be a gift because it the is. men are going to be participating and co-parenting even more than in my in my, our generation, you know, or mm -hmm. the generations before. And so hopefully that's more of an equalization of duties as, as families begin to s decide, okay, well, I'll, today I'll work from home and you homeschool and tomorrow, you know, however they're going to work it out. Yeah, it's, it can be more flexible and fluid. I mean, everything's a little democratic right now because COVID-19 doesn't, um, there's no prejudice, right? It right. doesn't discriminate. And I think maybe dads are finding out, hey, I, I like this. You know, I like this involvement. I, I, I can feel the ability to compensate for my distant father's lack of involvement. You know, I can uh, still do my job. Um, look at the, you know, what is it? 40% of workers have realized that are stay at home now have realized they, they actually don't need offices anymore. Right. And that a home office is, is a much more enriching um, experience. And, you know, yesterday I was listening to um, Ann Patchett and she was talking about, she, th she thinks that there are going to be a, a portion of the population of kids that are going to look back at this time and say, it was the best. My parents were there. You know, they were interested in what I was doing. I wasn't disconnected, you know, or, or they'll say, you know, they were bearing down on me yet again. But, you, you know, it depends on the, on the life stage. But I think one of the things you just mentioned, too, um, the, the multi-layered effect, okay, of not earning money for domestic, um, your, your domestic engagement as a mm -hmm. housewife. Mm -hmm. I had a fantastic grandmother who worked all her life up until she was 80, and I was taking her to work because nobody in the family thought she should be doing that. Anyway, and then I was working with her. We were in a catering kitchen together. It was just the best. But she had money, and I got money. But when you are a housewife, you know, this is not compensated monetarily. So the other message is, and you're getting this allowance, as you said. So the other message is, well, is it right to expect money? Or how do I, how do I negotiate money? How, so all of those skills completely lie dormant in these generations of women too. Yes, absolutely. That's a brilliant observation. I know that's one thing I personally struggle with being an entrepreneur is, well, you know, how, how much value do I bring and how do I, how do I get compensated? And I, I imagine a lot of women are turning to entrepreneurship um, because they can, they can develop their own business and have a say and, but then also get compensated according to their value. And it is a bit of a undoing, you know, to, undo that old ideas. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, um, there's um, a woman whose podcast I was listening to. It's um, Science with Sophie. Because, you know, it, lots. this was an indirect connect, connection with my podcast, but also I became enchanted with Science with Sophie because anything that can bring science into right brain thinking is positive. Like, you know, we're talking about the molecular connections. And anyway, I was listening to Science with Sophie and she has a YouTube and she's young. She's uh, maybe 27 or maybe in her early 30s, but she wrote a letter to herself. You know, I'm going out in the world. I'm developing this podcast, Science with Sophie. And 
I'm going to, and she writes the letter to self. And how are we going to, you know, how are we going to ask for money on our own terms and not be flinching, not be cringing, not be second guessing? You know, it's really, it's interesting because, you know, here we are, she's a good bit younger, but this spans a whole whole generations, a whole life span of, of females who, you know, it's a skill set. It's a muscle set. We're unused to it. You have to try it. You have to practice it. You have to do it. And it's going to feel really awkward many times. Many times. And then there's the, uh, the continual um, review and adjustment, right? Which is, I guess that's just what living does for you, right? You are, Hopefully, if you're awake and aware, you're reviewing, okay, am I still being kind? Am I still being decent with myself? Am I being compassionate with others? You know, hopefully people are, I'm always in that review. I don't think I'm weird. I think that's what people do. That's what healthy people do. Right. So, Diane, we just went through this whole wormhole yes, thing. Yes, we did. And I digressed off, a of, good thing. off of your story. Mm-hmm. So it's really not because, you know, my grandmother was right there and she is the one who brought me here from the orphanage in Germany. It was her brother who ran the orphanage. He was a child psychologist. And so it was through this grandmother who was the mother of my adoptive mother um, that I came. So we really didn't. Anyway, if we digress, so what? It's perfect. A, A perfect imperfection. So I, so my other question then for you about your particular story of being adopted um, is what, what were a couple of the ahas that you gained by reconnecting with your biological father? Well, there were many, um, and I am thankful to him for having done what he did. Um, you know, a lot of the ahas came through, um, you know, third-party sources because you can tell. I, you know, I, I read and I try to glean wisdom from people. And um, there's a there's an author called Nancy Verrier who wrote a book called The Primal Wound. It's an old book. It's probably in its fifteenth or sixteenth reprint. It's uh, it's an absolute classic on. Um, the severance between um, biological mother and child. So I knew through having read Nancy's work um, that Otto, my reconnection with my biological father meant certain things, and it was a certain part of the narrative, but that the primal connection was going to be with my mother, that Mm -hmm. I needed to say to Otto, this is great. Um, you're very kind to do this and generous to do this. Um, he, he wanted it to be full stop enough. And I said, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, I know a little bit and the little bit that I know, it tells me we have to go to the source and that is my mother. Um, so we couldn't meet my mother because she had passed away, sadly. Um, something like Oh, in like 1987. So I met Otto in 2002. Um, I knew him for 16 years until his passing in 2018. Lovely man. I'm very grateful. Um, But the aha was really 
with him, it was twofold. One was I was so in need of acknowledgement without even knowing that I was. When he acknowledged me, it meant a lot. Having said that, I didn't need to completely become a subscriber to his notion of himself, which was that he was my savior. And, you know, he had a kind of an elaborate narrative himself. So I guess the real aha was realizing everybody's got their own narrative, right? Everyone's got their own take on why we're doing what we're doing. Um, So I had to finally say to him, if I were in your shoes, Otto, what I would do is come clean, tell me the whole story, tell me the ultra bottom line truth of what happened with you and my mother. Um, He was unwilling to do so. He wanted this veneer of being this sterling character. He couldn't even at, you know, 50 years later come to terms with the fact that he'd walked out on her. And, um, you know, we didn't really learn this until, um, well, until I met my biological mother's family. Um, Delightful people that I love having a community with and a family with now. And finding out that she, in fact, um, far from abandoning me, she'd taken a job in the orphanage to be with me that first year, none of which I would have known if I'd have stopped with Otto's story. Right, right. I got chills as you're, I, I got chills as you're saying that. So that, did that feel like it he- healed uh, a bit of the wounding when you found that out? I think it does if you're on a parallel track doing the work yourself, that you've um, developed some kind of, you know, the problem is, you know, we're, <laughs> you know, when you have a story like mine, you're so used to unfulfillment (laughs) that you, you know, because there were so many, you know, I couldn't, didn't, I I was just sort of pre-consciously aware that I'd had some other existence, um, but I couldn't get there. And and then it was 47 when it started to, you know, happen. So by that time I had fallen back on my own resources. You know, I had developed, I had to, start to develop a a self-concept that was whole, that wasn't reliant on the approval of others as much as it really had become. Really, it Mm -hmm. was, you know, I, I, I was just, I really was quite uncompassed for a long time. And that whole experience of, yes, meeting my biological family allowed that to solidify, allowed me to have a truth that stuck, that took root, that wasn't shifting, the sands weren't shifting, I didn't have to parse it anymore. Um, You know, we are having to parse a lot of news every day that we know is not true. And the sifting constantly through, it's exhausting. It's just exhausting. So I, I really did start to stand on firmer, ground. And all of those things, you know, kind of came together in a much better way um, than they were when it was all fragments. So I got chills again. So what I'm hearing as you're, as you're just speaking now, Diane, is that you have 
developed a solid foundation within yourself that is uh, more that is whole you use the word whole that is is more uh all the parts of you the parts you didn't know because of having been adopted and the parts that you personally developed and sourced yourself uh it it, it sounds like from what you just said that there's like a com a completion that's what i'm hearing like a completion of who you are now that's what we're all trying to work for right i mean that's the job the task at hand i think yes um it's 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 obviously a work in progress mm -hmm. um I just think, though, that if you s reclaim, you know, there's that reclaim the disavowed parts of you, reclaim Ooh. the parts of your past, reclaim the parts of yourself that you declared at some point couldn't exist. They were either unacceptable, impractical, impossible. You know, no, go back into those files and read them, you know. Who was that person when you stopped letting her be there? And I know that everybody has experienced this. There's some resonant moment in your life when you, you wake up and you say, wait a second, this is who I am. Sometimes we're 10, sometimes we're 12, sometimes we're 16, sometimes later. But I mean, a lot takes shape in adolescence. And I'm, I'm a believer in going back to those um, times when we had less roles uh, less roles that we assign to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm also a, a huge believer that the only way any of this works is to in, tap into our intuitive knowledge. Diane Dewey, I just, I, in this conversation, I have fallen in love with you. Oh, thank you. It's mutual. I mean, I just think what you're doing is just fantastic. Oh, thank really. you. The wisdom that you, the wisdom that you are, the wisdom, because you're willing to go the, the journey, you're willing to do the journey of life that so many people um, try and hide from because it's so daunting at times. I'm just, yes. It's, a, it's an excavation, right? I mean, it's something... Look, I like to flee from it sometimes too. I mean, you know, there we were talking earlier, you know, like sometimes only a, a rom-com will do. You know, you you can't just you can't binge on on introspection, but yes, I do feel privileged, even lucky, and that strikes people as odd to have had a life where I really did have to make it my business to understand my identity. It didn't go away. It wouldn't go away. And um, it called me. Uh, I, I did, you know, I, I had to answer the call. It was, you know, if you're, if you're trying to bury yourself and you keep getting letters in the mail <laughs> from, <laughs> from, you know, and, but it can be signs too. Like, you know, I just listened recently to a really just a wonderful, you know, I've been on the road um, because of because of needing to um, create an exodus from Florida, um, and for for health healthy to be connected with family and to get out of that zone of the COVID um, prevalence. But I was listening to this podcast of this woman, and she was an Irish woman, and she uh, she and her seven sisters had to 
had um, lived with their father. I'm actually not certain what had happened to their mother. Um, the, the father loved them and took them to the library and took them to places that they could learn about things and themselves and life. And when the father passed away, there were these seven sisters who had been bonded so closely by him. And they went to bits. They, it was so painful to even come in contact with one another because of their shared love of him that mm. it actually started to fracture their relationship. And um, so, but before that happened, the undertaker came and said, who's going to be the pallbearers? You've got to assign some guys, you know, you must have some friends or cousins or brothers. Or, no, we don't have any brothers. And the seven girls, the seven I think they were in their teens and early 20s, took their father's casket on their shoulders. Wow. Um, which I found completely empowering. And yes. they, uh, and the woman who was telling the story said that it, it was life-changing. Um, and of course, no one wanted to let them do it, but she said it was the most, that, that casket was almost airborne you know, just in terms of the rightness of them doing it made yes. it deliverable. Um, but the thing I was trying to get at was that then she, they, they, then they kind of got, it was hard. They didn't see one another. They didn't have the father in common. And then um, one of them just got so distraught. Um, she, she, she just made a call, you know, to the cosmos and said, you know, she went, she went on a trip and, and she, she said, I have to get reconnected. I have to have a sign that our dad is still among us, that we still have that connective thread. I just need a sign. So she opens her you know, arms to the sky. And with that, she gets on her cell phone. I mean, there's a technical reason for this, but she gets a delayed voicemail from her father on her cell phone. Oh my um, gosh. Um, and it was only because, you know, she, whatever, all these time zones or her service was interrupted or, you know, there's some logical connection, but she got this, she got this voicemail and he, he just, the, and the, the message was, I'm home. You can always come. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So I just think, look, if you're going to get signs like that, I mean, you know, she didn't, she, she like hesitantly let the other sisters know that it had happened. And they were like, no, we're, we don't think you're crazy. We're overjoyed, you know? Right, right. Yep. And just that just goes pay back. Attention. Yes, you have to pay attention. And that goes back to be, being uh, connected it, within yourself to hear right? And to receive those messages, but also to allow that connection. Again, it goes back to there is no time, right? You know, time and space is, a, like you said, a relative thing. So wherever he is, they are and, you know, vice versa. And that's powerful. That's very powerful. Well, we used to have like transcendent used to be a thing. Like when I was growing up, I was always reading like Walt Whitman and the transcendentalists and everything. Like, where did they go? Because that was such a good word, you know? And the the thing is that um, when you were saying that, I was realizing you're absolutely right, especially like it's getting harder, right? To keep the focus on 
any kind of uh, connection because look at what we're being bombarded with all the time. And we're in a crisis harder and harder. I don't know how you do it. I mean, you, you know, how do we do it? Everyone has their, you know, this delightful morning tea. And it sounds like you went to lots of different places with that. And that's so cool. You know, that's how it happens. Yes, it is. You make some space and, and into it comes these, what you need to connect, but we do need to connect all the more. So now we've got to be very aware very aware and and i would suggest diligent there's a uh oh, some somebody i was speaking to yesterday brought up the word tenacity tenacity mm-hmm. and um yes we have to be tenacious with our ability to really hear deep within our soul deep within our hearts what is our personal truth and have it be the truth that comes from within that from that divine spark that we all are and not the outer world telling us what to think and believe i think that is actually diane i think that is the crisis we're in is people becoming individual thinkers as opposed to collective uh sheep you know well we talked about the sheep earlier now here's some more sheep you know, but believing what they're being told, as opposed to what is it within me that I really, really know to be true. And And I, yeah, and I think, I think that that what I think that what is in you that you know, to be true, is the connector to all of us. I don't think that that becomes um, isolating whatsoever. Because and I love the fact that you, tenacity, okay, so that's like to hold on to, well, first of all, it's to hold, and that's a beautiful concept. But I think what you're saying, um, the relevance of what you're saying is extreme, because if you're going to, you know, if you're going to listen to these intuitive messages that we get, we either push them away, or we let them in. Um, and if we're going to hold them, and hold the tenacity that it takes to keep the barrage, you know, nope, that's not, nope, that's not landing, that's not true, that's not my truth, and keep doing that, we're going to find ourselves connectively much stronger together. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I have friends that I highly love and respect that are the ones that are digging out in the world to find the answer and the truth, right? Well, the truth about this COVID thing, the truth about whatever it is they're digging for, right? And that's not where the truth lies. The truth doesn't lie outside of us. The truth lies within us. And just what you said about following that intuition and feeling the connection. And that is what connects all of us across the globe. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the fact of the matter is, we'll never have the truth. I mean, we, we can't get the truth. We don't really, you know, there's so many truths that, you know, I, I, I learned it in my own story. You know, I, I, I thought, okay, here's Otto. Wow, I'm going to find out what happened. No. Here's my biological mother's family. I'm going to find out exactly what happened. No, there was still that 18-minute gap 
in like the Richard Nixon tape, you know, those, <laughs> those moments where we're just never going to know. And what you end up realizing, except for the fact that I did get this second extraordinary letter from um, an anonymous person who sent it, and it was in my mother's own handwriting, and it described her being with me in the orphanage. So I did have that truth. But, you know, the circumstances surrounding her and Otto's blow up, I'll never know. And when you go that far and dig, dig, dig for those 16 years that I did, and you realize you'll never have the truth, and you realize it doesn't matter, because as you say, it's not the story. It's not coming from the narrative. It's not coming from what happened. And, and it, the story is the one we're threading through, the one we're creating. And that's the one that matters. Yes. So this goes back to the title of your book. Yes. Fixing, fixing, the, fates. fixing the fates. You know, it is up to each of us individually to really discern what our truth is, where we see that may, okay, now maybe I'm just talking about me, Diana, you know, where I maybe was living a lie, you know, to make it all look good, you know, and all that stuff. But the fixing the fates is at any time, I got chills again, at any time, any of us can make those changes that adjust or fix what seemed to be fate. It, it, this I'm just riffing on your title, Diane. But oh no, I think it's perfect. I, I mean, actually, love the fact that it's a positive spin. Um, I do think that you know, ho holding your destiny in your hands is clearly what we've got right now and and always. Although we're just not as um, aware of it, but I, I think that um, you know. The fixing in when I was contemplating it, it was also, I mean, and what you, that adjustment that you made to your fate, I think that is healing. I think that is when you start to coalesce as a person. It doesn't feel like healing. It feels like total crap. But you have taken the step toward yourself. And that is what is necessary. And the, 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 um, the fixing the fates was also, you know, like in horse racing, they fix the race. You know, right. I kept feeling like the fate, my fate kept getting fixed by other people. And it was like, no, I mean, it, first of all, it doesn't need fixing. It just is. <laughs> so I really just like to have what is. Um, you get very addicted to, you know, like just let it what let it be what it is. Um, don't give me any flourishes or frou frous or elaborations, um, because as you say, it takes a lot of energy to keep things stuffed down inside oh, yeah. of appearances. And you know, I actually have great sympathy for my mother, my adoptive mother now, that she did find it necessary to stuff down so much. Um, during my lifetime, but it was her belief system. She was doing the best that she could. Um, she ultimately gave me the letter that came from Otto. When she handed it to me, she said, I almost didn't give you this. I, I mean, there were so many moments where the fates could have been fixed yet again and wouldn't have tipped maybe in what I would call my favor. 
but look, she did it, you know, and um, she, she, she came through. Well, part of it was that my adoptive father, my beloved adopted father, had died exactly six months prior to my letter from Otto. So there was also this other, like, whoa. I mean, it was just very, like, Freud would have a field day with this, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Can't, can't explain it. Diane Dewey, thank you so much for joining me and sharing parts of your journey and having the conversation with me and, and going on a, a, a lovely ride today. I am, I'm deeply grateful. I'm going to cry. I, God, this happens. I'm so grateful to have connected with you and had the conversation and that you have done, you are doing some really awesome work that other people are, are benefiting from, whether we know it or not, right? I'm so grateful for you. Well, I think you've got this depth going on that you've um, managed um, to, to find and that's why we have the chemistry. That's why we can have the conversation. That's why it goes in so many interesting directions. So I thank you for the alchemy and for the opportunity to speak with you. And, um, you know, I just, I love it. This is just very, it's very special when you can create something like this. Yeah. Thank you so much. So um, the book is called Fixing the Fates, an adoptee story of truth and lies by Diane Dewey. Diane, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, and she's got a podcast on Voice America called Dropping In. So check that out. So I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our empowering chat today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, go to susanburrell.com. You can see all of the information about my new book, Live an Empowered Life, a 30-Day Journey. You can also access guided meditations that I have on Insight Timer through the website and just see what else is out there on my site that you might find empowering and exciting to experience. You can also contact me through the website at susan at susanmorell.com. So that's it for today. See you next time. <laughs>